This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by our friends at B. Dratty. Okay, the B. Dratty Liam Polo. I've talked about it before. It's magical. It's everything you want in a polo. And can I just say Peruvian Pima Cotton a couple of times? Peruvian Pima Cotton. That's what the classic B. Dratty Liam Polo is made of, and it is comfortable, good-looking, breathable, all the things you want as summer heats up. So head over to bdratty.com to get your own and use code TFE for 15% off at checkout. bdratty.com, code TFE, 15% off. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. It was 1898. Joe Mitchell was the professional at a golf club in the Cleveland, Ohio area. One day, a member named Coburn Haskell arrived, and he handed Joe a golf ball. According to an account in the B.F. Goodrich Company archives, here's what happened next. Hit this ball for me, Mr. Haskell requested of Joe. The ball looked exactly like the usual ball, the cover having been pressed in the same mold, and Joe took his stance and walloped it with never a thought that he was assisting at the making of history. Out across the fairway of the first hole was a bunker which never had been carried by anybody. It was so far from the tee that only an occasional tremendous poke with the old gutty would send the ball rolling into it, in dry weather. And it was right over the middle of that bunker that Joe's drive with the new ball sailed, high in the air, landing yards beyond. Joe Mitchell stood watching the ball with eyes and mouth wide open. Then he let out a yell and began a sort of dance. Then he began to implore Mr. Haskell to tell him if he was dreaming, and if not... What was in that ball? What was in it was basically rubber. Here's how the story usually goes. Coburn Haskell was visiting a friend at the Goodrich Rubber Factory in Akron. There, Haskell picked up some elastic rubber thread, wound it around and around itself, and the resulting ball bounced like a grasshopper. Haskell, who was an avid golfer, had an idea. He asked the factory workers to encase the ball in a layer of gutter percha. And that's how, in 1898, he invented the wound core golf ball. Five years later, the Haskell ball had taken over the game and redefined it in ways we're still arguing about today. This is Friday Egg Stories. I'm Garrett Morrison. This episode is the second of three to take a closer look at the golf ball, its design, its history, and its impact on the game. Each installment focuses on a different revolution in golf ball technology. Part one told the story of the gutta percha ball, which changed who could play the game. Part two will consider the Haskell ball, which I think changed something about the very essence of golf, or at least how we think and talk about it. Basically, when the Haskell arrived, golf had a decision to make. Ban it and become a game fixed in time, separate from the modern world, or embrace it and become a game that accommodates science and technology, that adjusts its playing fields and even its rules to keep up with the times. That was the choice, 
and the brightest minds in golf battled over it in the early years of the 20th century. And today, somehow, we're still having the same debate. If you know something about the history, the debate today sometimes lapses into verbatim, verbatim sentences. I mean, literally, it's the same sentence. That's Robert Crosby, a golf historian. And in this episode, Bob is my guide through the post-Haskell moment, a moment that, in many ways, created the golf world as we know it now. And at the center of it all was an Englishman named John Lowe. John Lowe was a remarkably precocious, remarkably brash, self-confident, avid golfer. By the mid-1890s, Lowe had regular bylines in golf magazines. And when the governing body of British golf, the RNA, formed a rules committee in 1897, he was a member. Just a few years before that, he had been a student at Cambridge. I guess I didn't realize that he was so young when all of this was happening. He was, he was a kid. He's not just another letter in the letterbox that you would find reproduced in, say, Golf Illustrated. He's leading the debate. He's a remarkably outgoing, very bright, incredibly articulate, and extraordinarily self-confident for somebody his age. So in 1901, John Lowe was already a prominent figure in the game. And 1901 was the year that the Haskell Ball made its debut in Britain. A couple of balls appeared, and they were given to Horace Hutchinson, who then gave a couple of the balls to John Lowe and others of his friends. And they played with it at St. Andrews. Right away, Lowe saw that this ball was different. Lowe writes about he took one of the balls and dropped it on the floor, and I guess at the RNA clubhouse, and the ball bounced over his head. It was clear from the get-go that it was a longer ball. Yet neither Lowe nor his friends took the Haskell all that seriously at first. They thought it was just a novelty. Because the ball was so lively, they assumed it would be harder to putt and chip with. It turned out that you could adjust adjusted that pretty easily. And the Haskell, already popular in America, caught on like wildfire in England and Scotland. So that by 1902, it was played everywhere. By then, John Lowe knew a couple of things about this ball. First, it went much farther than the gutty. The estimate varied from 20 yards to 40 yards farther. But it was, it was a ball that clearly left the club face at a higher rate of speed <laughs> than any gutty could ever hope to do. Second, and this is the most important thing, it introduced a whole new method of designing a golf ball. The gutty had just been a solid hunk of hardened gum. Aside from experimenting with dimple patterns, there wasn't much an inventor could do with it. The gutty was the gutty. It just was, was a technology at a dead end. But it soon became clear that the wound ball design had opened up a new set of possibilities for the manufacturers. The leap forward with the Haskell was that it had a core, sometimes made of something solid, sometimes made of something liquid, surrounded by a wound bands of rubber at, at a certain tension level and then covered by some sort of rubber covering. It was a whole new kind of ball. But it introduced a whole concept that there would be better and better balls coming along on a fairly regular basis that would be yet longer, yet more durable. And that was why John Lowe became worried. So much so that Lowe goes to the RNA autumn meeting in 1902 
and says, guys, we got to do something about this ball. This is going to render obsolete the best golf courses we know. The RNA responds by saying, and Lowe thought, hopefully, that yeah, we'll address it at the spring meeting, the 1903 spring meeting. In the meantime, let's do some checking and look, look into it and see exactly how much farther it flies. Let's see what the effect it's having on scoring. By the time of the May 1903 meeting, it's pretty clear to everybody that the ball is in a, represents an enormous leap in ball performance, that it is indeed having an effect on how golf courses are played. Nonetheless, and this is what angers Lowe, and he stays angry about this for the rest of his life, notwithstanding all of that, the RNA refuses to ban it. Lowe felt that this decision, at its root, was self-serving. It wasn't just that they thought the ball was okay. They didn't. They agreed it was a bad thing for the game, but they made, and this is what angered Lowe so much, they made a decision not to ban it because of its popularity. And that, in turn, was based, I think, on fears that if they did do so, no one would pay attention to them anymore. So the Haskell, in effect, became the new standard ball. John Lowe was pissed, and we've already established that he wasn't exactly shy, so he started firing off letters to magazine editors, and in his book concerning golf, he said his colleagues in the RNA were, quote, neither prompt nor brave enough to carry out their own convictions. He was the bete noir of so many people, the target of cartoons, mocked by other journalists, made fun of here and there, and it didn't phase him. He just marched on. He just soldiered ahead with his objections to the Haskell. So why did he feel so strongly about the ball? Well, it had to do with his overall vision of golf. Lowe was concerned, first and foremost, to try to preserve various attributes of the traditional Scottish game. These attributes belong to three main categories. The courses, the rules, and the equipment. In the traditional Scottish game, as Lowe knew it, you had courses on the seaside links, rules based on the old St. Andrew's codes, and clubs and balls fashioned locally out of wood, iron, and gutta percha. Because he thought those attributes made the game the interesting game that it was, and not because those attributes would make it a popular game, but because those attributes had intangible benefits to golfers. They tested character, they developed perseverance, the ability to deal with good breaks and bad breaks, which all led to higher levels of camaraderie. It was a metaphysical view that saw golf as important to character. And absent the attributes of the older game, low believe, those benefits to character were less available. The difficulty and unpredictability of the game is a feature, not a problem. And for so long as people have the idea, and this is a phrase that Lowe returns to again and again, that they, that they want to, quote, conquer golf, tame golf, it's a completely incorrect mindset to bring to the game. The Haskell sits in the middle of all of those issues. 
It is a way to short circuit the best parts of the game by overcoming the difficulties and unpredictability of the game. And so in the process of debating the Haskell ball, Lowe articulated an entire philosophy of golf. He liked to say he represented the conservative party of the game. Now, of course, conservative has a political meaning now, as it did then, but this is different. Lowe used the word literally. He wanted to conserve the old ways of Scottish golf. He thought those old ways built character, bred camaraderie, and were just beautiful in and of themselves. Opposed to this conservative party, Lowe said, was the party of equity, which he thought pandered to the masses by seeking to close the gap between weak and strong players. The party of equity thought an easier game would be a more popular game, and that was why they embraced the Haskell ball. This conflict, although specific to golf, had a lot to do with what was going on in the world. Let's go back to 1901, 1902. The Victorian age was coming to an end. The Edwardian age was just a borning, as they say. And Lowe was a young man, very much an Edwardian. Younger men like Lowe, like Colt, like Fowler, like Simpson, were trying to sort out a different way to think about golf than their, what their Victorian forebears had taught them. For the Victorians, broadly speaking, golf was about fairness. It was about a very public display of virtue. So to them, any course design, any rule change, any new club or ball that seemed to make the game more fair, more regular, was clearly good. But Edwardian golfers, like John Lowe, saw things differently. It was okay to just enjoy the challenges of the game. It didn't have to have a higher moral purpose. Enjoy the process and learn from the process, whether or not it brings you, you know, gets you into heaven ultimately. Edwardians made golf more about private enjoyment, private self-improvement. And there are things that I can do that I like to do, and that's okay. And that's okay. And golf for Lowe was that thing. It might not make for better civil servants in the British Empire, but it's fun. In other words, fairness and public virtue were beside the point. Lowe saw golf as an individual heroic adventure, and anything that made the game less adventurous, easier, more predictable, more under control, he tended to reject. One of the key motivations for science is to take control of nature. Lowe's concern is those people that want to take control of golf. Golf is a man-made thing, and it can be changed if man wants to change it. But if we are going to enjoy its real benefits, we have to leave it where it is in its more or less traditional forms. And if that means golf becomes less popular, so be it. So in the first decade of the 20th century, it was the Victorians versus the Edwardians, the party of equity versus the conservative party. And while they all bickered, the British ball manufacturers got to work. By 1905, 1906, a couple of years after the Haskell is not banned, there are all sorts of experimental balls coming out with different sorts of windings, different sorts of cores. Some use mercury, some use water, some all sorts of different things, virtually all of which didn't really pan out as advertised. But there was this wild experimentation going on. 
if you go into some of the British newspapers between 1905 and 1911 or 12 or so, the advertisements for golf balls are absolutely fascinating. I mean, they're making all kinds of wild claims. <laughs> what, are, what are some examples that you can think of? Well, I mean, just, you know, our golf ball will go much farther, last longer, and stay in round longer than the Haskell, you know extraordinary links you know the usual advertising blurbs you and i can sort of make up here on the spot are all for the first time being promulgated by golf ball manufacturers but it wasn't just marketing there were some real advances in technology happening the ball was getting longer and longer again because there were simply no rules and why not try something yet by the end of the decade a funny thing had happened a lot more golfers had come to agree with John Lowe that something needed to be done about the ball. This was partly because more Edwardians had come of age, and it was partly because the so-called conservative party had a number of eloquent supporters in the press, including perhaps the greatest golf writer of all time in Bernard Darwin. But mostly it had just become obvious to everyone that the rubber wound core ball did go farther, and it was changing the game. As far as I know, every open venue made substantial additions to its length between, say, 1905 and 1910. They had no choice. They really had no choice. And it was a shadow that hung over the, the game. Golf courses couldn't be sure at any point in time that they weren't going to have to undergo yet further major changes to match up with the golf ball. And this was how something like a consensus started to form. Nobody can deny that the new balls are really affecting golf courses. It's just in front of your face. Don't even begin to tell me it hasn't had an effect on golf courses. In 1913, John Lowe became chairman of the RNA Rules Committee. The stage was set. The RNA and USGA were in touch, various standards were being discussed, and the passing of the first ball rule in golf history seemed imminent. And then World War I hits and everything comes to a screeching halt. World War I brought devastation on a scale that Europeans could scarcely understand. On the Western Front, trench warfare raged for four years. Obviously, no one was really thinking about golf at the time. Well, John Lowe sort of was. Even though normal functions at the RNA were shut down during World War I, Lowe kept discussions of the ball alive among members of the Rules Committee. Wouldn't let it go. There were a few basic proposals on the table. J.H. Taylor and, H. And, and Harold Hilton had an idea that what we ought to do is license ball manufacturers, and as a condition to them making approved balls, we can inspect their factories to see how they make balls, that sort of thing. That would be a strict sort of regulation, giving the governing bodies direct control over all aspects of the ball, including its design and material composition, not a popular idea among manufacturers. Other proposals were less stringent. Willie Parker was among the first to suggest the idea that we limit balls by limiting its weight and size. In other words, it can't weigh more than X or have a diameter of less than X. This would qualify as regulation, but it would also give manufacturers plenty of room to innovate. For John Lowe's part, he was frustrated that no one seemed to want to go back to the gutty, so he came up with an alternative, the floater. A ball that floats. Easy standard to implement and enforce. Does it float? The floater did gain support among Lowe's fellow conservatives. But the problem was, most golfers liked what the wound ball did for them, and they knew that any ball that could float 
had no chance of beating the Haskell. The floater would effectively be a rollback to the gutty. And that was where things stood when the war ended in late 1918. The next year, the Daily Mail newspaper sponsored a tournament at St. Andrews that came to be known as the Substitute Open. There, the ball issue took on some extra urgency. People were hitting the golf ball distances they had never seen before. People were hitting the 14th hole, the long hole at the old course with a driver and a seven iron. They were chipping onto the 17th hole for their second shots. People were shocked, stunned. So as soon as the RNA opened back up, John Lowe was ready. He was able to present to them a subcommittee that he had formed to investigate ball regulation, named the committee members, and said, we're going to contact the USGA, ball manufacturers, and the British PGA and get everybody on board. And that's exactly what they did immediately. The USGA writes back, says, we're with you on this, buddy. Let's do it. Something's got to be done. But it turned out that other U.S. golf organizations were less enthusiastic. The Western Golf Association and the U.S. PGA oppose any ball rules at all. Nothing. We want nothing. We want pure libertarian golf. I can play any ball I want to play with. Get out of my face. So in 1920, the USGA traveled to Muirfield for a summit with the RNA. And the American delegates had bad news for John Lowe. We can't do the floater. If you're going to do the floater, we're out of here. Now keep in mind, at this point, Lowe was about 50 years old. He was no longer an upstart firebrand. He was an elder statesman, maybe a little gentler, maybe a little more diplomatic. So he decided to compromise on the ball rule. At Muirfield, the RNA and USGA agreed to regulate size and weight, a minimum diameter of 1.62 inches and a maximum weight of 1.62 ounces, which was approximately the size and weight of the best performing balls of the time. But Lowe thought, well, I was defeated on the floater, and that's a disappointment, but I got a rule. And that rule ought to be able to shield us from further ball improvements down the line, and I'll count that as a victory. That was May 1920. Just a few months later, before the rule even went into effect, the ball manufacturers had a surprise. They came out with prototype balls that fit the new specifications. It turned out the prototype balls went farther than the older ball. And everybody was in shock. Absolute shock. J.H. Taylor says, Lo, my girlfriend, Lo, you really screwed this up. It's just a big mess. To this day, nobody knows exactly how the manufacturers did it. The theory is that they made the, the windings were tighter. There was a slightly thinner cover that the core was made out of some sort of liquid. No one, Lowe never could figure out what they did. It, he was deeply frustrated by, he, I think he felt betrayed by the manufacturers because they had been in close consultation with them up to the ball rule. And I think he felt backsided by them. I suspect, Garrett, this is rank speculation, that the manufacturers got together and talked about it and they shared ideas. Their response to the ball rule was nothing short of glee. They loved it. Essentially, they didn't have to change anything on their manufacturing lines 
And I also suspect they knew in the back of their mind ways to get around it. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they did almost immediately. So they were ready. I mean, that, oh, that much man. is clear. They were ready. They weren't just ready. They were, <laughs> but they, they, they had big, I, I assume they had a round of drinks in their offices when the rule came. The events of 1920 made a few things very clear. One, if you regulate just the size and weight of the ball instead of what it's made of, you're not doing much. If you give the manufacturer a max-min limit, he's going to push it in ways that pikers like you and I can never imagine. Two, the new rule didn't settle the ball issue. It did the opposite. It ensured that the debate would continue. That, that wrestling match, that tug of war, that wrestling match between the ingenuity of the manufacturers and the rule makers in the game is very much still with us. And three, golf itself would not be what John Lowe envisioned. It would not be an island in time. Instead, golf would change as the world changed. And whatever the current science was, the game would let it in. But so the origin story is I was at a golf outing. That's Brett Sergalis, the author of Golf's Holy War, the battle for the soul of a game in an age of science. He's telling me how he came up with the idea for the book. You're on the putting green, you're hitting balls, you're eating like a box lunch of sliced apples, you know, and, and there was a guy named Skip Latella who was giving a lesson on the range. It was giving a demonstration he was using these things called flexor discs, which are like these hard rubber things, almost familiar now where a, where a student was standing on them and he was kind of teaching the student how to move and it didn't seem very interesting at all. And then Skip said, by her standing on these flexor discs, she was innervating her deep muscle tissue, which was opening up the uh, communication between the neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters in her brain and her muscles. And so he was teaching her to relearn a complex motor pattern subconsciously. I was some reason I was paying attention and I was like, what the hell did that guy just say? This was 2008. Brett was a young reporter at the New York Post. He had played golf in high school, but hadn't really kept track of the game. I still had my DCI irons and like my old 975D driver. I didn't really know exactly too much about the cutting edge of the game. And I was like, well, what has happened to golf in this time where I haven't been paying super close attention? So Brett went up to Skip Latella, the guy with the flexor discs. And I was like, well, who uses these things? Like, is there a teacher that uses them? He said, David Glenn's. So I went out and I spent some time with David Glenn's, talked to him. And he had a guy down the range that was teaching named Henry Ellison, who was like the exact opposite. He was like this spiritual, esoteric, like really just interesting guy. He had a long relationship with technology. And then he had this horrible divorce with technology and ended up becoming like this spiritual guy. So I was like, hey, here's this conflict. Brett had stumbled upon a widening divide in 21st century golf, a divide between science and art, between technology and spirituality, however you want to put it, and the more Brett and I talked, the more I was reminded of the party of equity versus the conservative party, the Victorians versus the Edwardians, the manufacturers versus John Lowe. You know, it kind of represents a worldview. Do you think of life as something inherently solvable or is there inherent mystery? 
so how you kind of look at the world then projects on how you play and think about the game how do we deal with like all of this increasing technology and all of this data that's now at our fingertips you know do we embrace science or do we kind of resist technology brett thinks these questions are especially keen for golfers you want to grab hold of something tangible and you want to know that you have the answer and golf is you're constantly like there's nothing nothing's perfect you never hit a perfect shot it's it's just constantly dealing with small or large amounts of failure and how do you deal with that one way to deal with it is to turn to science and technology whether that means flexor discs trackman numbers or the latest ball in a chaotic game these technological supplements give us more control or at least the promise of it it is the promise of having more control when I got fitted for my driver, you know, it's adjustable because every driver is now, right? And the fitter set it to a certain setting that was optimal for me, and I haven't touched it, you know, because to me, it's like, okay, well, I now know what this is going to do. Yeah, it's definitely, there's definitely a feeling of more control. There's no question about that. So we know John Lowe well enough at this point to have an idea of what he would say here. Golf should be unpredictable, uncontrollable. And if there is control, the players, not the implements, should be the agents of it. Brett does kind of agree with that view. To me, the equipment's made it a little less interesting to watch at the pro level because the bad shots are not as bad. But he agrees with it only to a point. Am I going to give up my 460cc driver? Am I, give, am I going to give up control? Like, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to get worse. In this way, Brett is like a lot of golfers, both now and 100 years ago. He sees that equipment advances haven't all been positive, but he just can't get behind the idea of a rollback. Well, it's, I, it's a nice idea, but it's, it's impractical. It's good to think about. It's like a thought practice. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know? So it's cool to like, like, it's like the guys that go out and wear, and wear plus fours and play with hickory. Cool. Like, great, go have fun. Go play from the front. Go play Marion from the front tees with Hickory. Awesome. That's not going to happen every day. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's over. Equipment has gotten to the point where it is, and it's not going to go backwards. So I don't think that's the answer. It's, it's romantic bordering on delusional <laughs> in terms of practically working. The answer lies in how do we deal with what we have right now? Because that's pra- that's the practical situation of the game. Gotcha. Sorry, I didn't mean to like crush that romantic idea. But... Fiddle with some of the vocabulary, and we could have had the same conversation at Muirfield in 1920. Maybe with John Lowe sitting nearby, stewing. Yet some things have changed since 1920 in the way we talk about golf. For one thing, professional golfers have far more of a voice now. And generally speaking, they side with the Victorians. The dominance of professional players over the culture of the game is now almost complete. That's Bob Crosby again. You've probably figured this out, but he's an Edwardian. If you are playing golf in order to put food on the table for your family, you will have a very, very different concept of how golf ought to operate as a sport than if you were playing it as an amateur. 
than playing it for pleasure or playing it because it's interesting and challenging. Between those two Venn diagrams, there's very little overlap. And today, the Party of Equity has pushed the Conservative Party to the margins of golf. And we're all more or less having the same debate we did in the early 1900s, but with one big difference. The difference, and I mean this to be controversial, the difference is that the side defending the conservative view of the game during those first two decades of the 20th century was far more articulate and effective in making the case for conservatism than the conservatives have been today. There is no one alive today that writes as well as Bernard Darwin, John Lowe, Tom Simpson. That bothers me. If you want to defend the conservative view of golf today, the place to go learn how best to do that is reread stuff from 1910. There's something sad about that. It, there's something very sad about that. But there you are. You can't do much better. So borrow, steal, whatever you have to do. On that note, how about we borrow a little John Lowe? Toward the end of our conversation, I asked Bob to read me the final paragraph of Lowe's 1912 essay, Golf and the Man. What we desire to see is that men should act nobly and chivalrously by the game, having no regard for any little chance or trick which may give them an opportunity for personal display or gain. They must love the game, but love it honorably. Man must continue to fight his battle and fight it bravely, but golf must remain unconquerable. Golf and the man is, is, it is a deeply philosophical look into what golf is, what constitutes golf, what are the constituent parts which, if removed, it ceases to be the same thing. I think he would say there are three legs to that stool. One are is the design of golf courses. That's what we play on. The rules we play under and the kind of implements we play with. Any sort of material change to any of those changes the nature of the game itself. It becomes something else. That's what he was concerned over the course of his career in protecting. I think at the end of the day, he was reasonably successful with the rules and reasonably successful with golf architecture. His influence continues today in the sense that we still look back to older St. Andrew's traditions for both of those. I think he probably would feel today he had lost on the ball. What he, he asked the ontological question, what is golf? And he had answers. <laughs> at least he thought he had. <laughs> John Lowe's defeat on the ball front set the terms for the modern game. As long as the ball was a certain size and weight, it could be made of anything. It could even be made of space-age plastics. That's next on Fried Egg Stories. This was the sixth episode of Fried Egg Stories and the second installment of our ball series. It was produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, and it was edited and engineered by Jay Virick. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. 
Many thanks to Bob Crosby and Brett Sergalis. Brett's book, once again, is called Golf's Holy War, and Bob's essays can be found in the journal Through the Green. Check out the links in the show notes, and thanks for listening. <laughs>